Let's get into Nehemiah chapter 2. If you don't know where Nehemiah is, it's about a quarter of the way through the Old Testament. You get through the Samuels, you get through the Kings, the Chronicles, then you have Ezra and Nehemiah. So that's where it is in the Bible. Uh, The Bible, though, if you don't know the Bible, that's that's okay. Uh, If you're new to it, that's okay. It's not listed out in chronological order. And so even though Nehemiah is about a quarter of the way through your Old Testament when you find and turn there, the story of what God is doing is a little bit different. In fact, uh, most scholars believe that Nehemiah was the last historical book uh, before the intertestamental period, before the time before the New Testament, where there was 400 years of silence, at least what we have in the Bible. And so these events are occurring after the Jews have been in exile uh, for a long time. They've been away from their home, from Jerusalem. They've been in exile, and their city is broken down. Some of them have come back, but their their walls are broken down, their gates are burned. And listen, that's not just like some secret thing I learned from a commentary. You can read that in chapters 1 and chapter 2. It says it, right? You just read the Bible, and you see that the walls are broken down, the gates are burned down. And Nehemiah shows up on the scene. He's an Israelite. He's a Jew, but he's not in Jerusalem yet. He's serving this king named Artaxerxes. Say Artaxerxes. He's a Persian king who who doesn't believe in God, who's in a different place than Jerusalem, far away. We think maybe about a 1,000 or so miles away from Jerusalem. And Nehemiah, we learned last week, the end of chapter 1, it says he's a cupbearer to the king. So he's a servant to that king. So that's Nehemiah. And in this chapter 2, he starts out having a conversation with the king. So here's where we're going. You ready? We're going to look at three points, and we're going to look at two chapters in a family service, and so get ready. Let's do this, okay? Uh, Here's our points. If you take notes, again, in our bulletin, the middle of the bulletin, open that up, living what we learn, all those things, you can take notes. Here's where we're going. You can write this down. We're going to talk about the courage to plan, the courage to persevere, and the courage to participate. So first, the courage to plan. Look at the text with me. Uh, starting in chapter 2, verse 1, it says that we get, a, we get a timeline, right? He says the month of Nisan. That was around March or April. If you look back to chapter 1, he talks about the month of Kislev. Uh, that was around November or December. And so if you do the math, that's been about four months since the prayer that we went through last week. You guys remember Nehemiah's prayer? It's been about four months since then. We show up in chapter 2, and he's having this conversation with the king. And if you notice, he's just doing his regular job. Look at the text with me. It says that the wine was before him, and so he took up the wine, and he gave it to the king. So he's a cupbearer. This is his job. He's still working his job. He prayed this extravagant prayer in chapter 1. Four months go by of waiting, of praying. And he's just working a regular job. And this is sometimes hard for us to see when we read the Bible because of things like the Action Bible. Uh, If you've never read the Action Bible, we have our kids in the service. Maybe some of you guys have the Action Bible. Actually, I love the Action Bible. It's really solid biblically, and it also has amazing graphics. It was illustrated by the guy who did some of the Marvel comics, also did the Action Bible. Parents, pick it up. It's great to read and act out with your kids. One of my favorite stories to act out with my kids is Nehemiah. But it can be a little bit misleading. Right, Because in the Action Bible, Ashwin, can you verify this? In the Action, Ashwin, in the Action Bible, in the Action Bible, uh, Nehemiah is tall and handsome and yoked up, right? And what does he have in his hand? He has a sword, right? That's why we love to act it out so much. 
But if you look at this text, if you actually read the Bible, chapter 2 starts out, he's got the wine in front of him, and he's giving it to the king. He prayed, he waits, and he works his regular job. But yet he has courage. And so some of you show up, and as we read the Bible, you look at stories like Nehemiah, maybe stories you heard growing up, and you think, God can never use me like that. I mean, I can't relate to Nehemiah at all. I mean, I can't have that kind of courage at all. But you need to see Nehemiah starts out, he prays, he waits, he works his regular job. Can you do that? Yes, right? All of us can do that, and God can begin to build courage in and through you. That's what he does through Nehemiah. And notice as you look at the text, as Nehemiah is working this regular job, it says he's sad. The king picks up on that he's sad. He says, why is your face sad? And this is a big deal. Again, you see it directly in the text. It's not secret sauce, right? You see it directly in the text. He says, He's sad. Uh, This is not a good thing because you're not supposed to show negative emotion to the king. We know that because we look at verse 1 and it says he hasn't been sad in his presence before. Verse 2, it says he's afraid because the king notices he's sad. So the king wants you to be positive, all hail the king, always, all the time, right? Nehemiah's not, he's sad. But He has the courage to be direct. Verse 3, look at that verse. He says, let the king live forever. And so he's saying, king, you're great. I'm not sad because of you. That has nothing to do with you. My situation's not so great. My hometown, Jerusalem, is in ruins. And so the king asks, verse 4, what are you requesting? And notice what Nehemiah does. He prays. Right in the moment, it seems like right in the conversation, he's asked a question, and instead of just answering that question, he prays, he says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. We just went through a series called Pray First, right? Nehemiah does exactly that. Before he even answers a question, he prays. Listen, just think about for a second in your life and in our world. What if we just prayed first before we even answered a question? I mean, imagine how many rants would go unspoken. Imagine how many Facebook posts would go unposted. If we, if we prayed first, that's what, that's what Nehemiah is doing. He prays, and then he lays out a plan. Look at the plan with me. You see it in verses 5 through 8. He plans that he would go personally. Verse 5, he says, send me to Judah. So he says, I'm going to go. Don't send somebody else. I'm going to go personally. He plans a time, verse 6. Verses 7 through 8, he plans for safe passage back to Jerusalem and supplies to do the work of rebuilding the city. So he asked for timber, for beams to help rebuild Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah plans, and it's a courageous plan. Here's why. He is talking to a pagan king, Artaxerxes. He's requesting permission from a guy who doesn't believe in God to go serve people who do believe in God. You tracking with me on that? He's requesting permission, but not just that. He's requesting provision. He's asking this king who doesn't believe in his God, doesn't believe in the the God of the people in Jerusalem. He's asking this king to resource him, to give him permission to go do this. It would be like if you went to your boss who's an atheist. You go to your boss who's an atheist and you say, hey, boss, I need 52 days off. That's courageous in and of itself, right? Uh, 52 days off, that's how long it took Nehemiah and his crew to rebuild the wall. We learned that in Nehemiah chapter 6. It would be like if you went to your atheist boss and said, I need these 52 days off. Not only that, I need you to resource my trip. And not only that, it's a mission trip to serve the God that you don't believe existed. 
right? This is what Nehemiah is doing. This is the plan he is making. So it's a courageous plan. And I think most of us, even as you hear me say that, the reality is we don't associate courage with planning, do we? We don't often associate courage with planning. We, we do often associate courage with pounding the table, with posting on Facebook, like, I'm going to show them, with maybe telling off your boss, like just storming in and telling your boss what you think of them. You think, man, that, that is, that's courageous. But I think sometimes we get off and we confuse uh, courage with crazy. We confuse courage with crazy. We think, oh, just, just drive there. Just get in your car and drive. Have you ever said that? Oh, just say that. I mean, just do that. Don't even think about it. That's real courage. But sometimes that's not always courage. Sometimes that's just crazy. Can we be honest for a second? I mean, sometimes that's just silly, like spontaneous revolts. Listen, spontaneous revolts, for the most part, often don't actually help you or anyone around you. They don't often help move the ball forward at all. That true courage is often associated with planning. And I think for some of us, that, that, that's not romantic enough. Like, well, this is the Bible. I mean, it's just courageous to plan things. That seems so practical. But if you're here and you're new to the Bible, again, we love it that you're here. You need to know the Bible is incredibly practical. Practical. I think a common misconception about the Bible is that the Bible is, is not relevant, and, and so we need to, to make it relevant. And so let's get some smokes and, and some lights and some, and some videos, and, and we'll bring it down to your level. Put the cookies on the bottom shelf, right? Have you heard that? The Bible's not practical. We, got, we have to make it so. You need to know, in this text, we're seeing a very practical thing. Nehemiah is planning out details to go on a trip. You can't get more practical than that. And it's not just the story of Nehemiah. It's all of the Bible. We don't have to make it practical. It already is. It already is practical because we have a God who's all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present. And from his authority, he speaks the words of the Bible through people. I mean, just think about that for a second. All-knowing God, all-powerful God speaks through people. That's, that's what's in your Bible. And, and so he doesn't do this. He doesn't get some angels floating on some clouds where everything's perfect and write the Bible through them. That's not how he wrote it. He doesn't just himself write the Bible, like just supernaturally put the words on pieces of paper. He could have done both of those things. He could have written the Bible any way he wanted to, but notice God writes the Bible through real-life people, in real-life places, through real-life languages like Greek and Hebrew that we have to translate and interpret. Uh, the Bible is, is so practical. It's real life. And because of that, it gets messy, right? There's good endings in the Bible. There's bad endings in the Bible. Just a spoiler alert, if you read the book of Nehemiah at the end of the book, it doesn't end well. It's not a fairy tale, but that's amazing because neither is life, right? Neither is life. And so you don't have to make the Bible practical. It already is. Why? Because God wrote it through people, just like you, just like me. And so that's why we go through the Bible is because we want to learn it. Listen, whether you're a Christian or not, you can learn things today and apply it to your life. Something as simple as planning 
can go a long way in your life today. The Bible's already relevant. It's already practical. That's why we go through it. And so as you look at your life, how many big needs are you always hoping, God, maybe could you meet this need? Like your financial debt, and you're just thinking, God, could you, could you take this away? Some of you are going through FPU, Financial Peace University, and you're hoping, God, could you meet this financial need? It's so great. Some of you are going through needs of, of a spouse. You think, if I could just get a spouse, God, if you could just meet that need. Some of you are thinking, if God could just change my spouse and, and he could meet that need. But let me ask you a question. What if God did? What if God actually showed up in the midst of your finances, in the midst of your relationship, and he met your biggest need? What would happen? Would you have a plan? Would you be prepared? If God opened a door in your life, would you know how to walk through it? I mean, just think about the story of Nehemiah. What if the king grants Nehemiah freedom to leave and help his people, this big need? What if that happens? He asked Nehemiah, hey, how long are you going to be gone? How are you going to accomplish all this? What if Nehemiah just stood there and said, well, I didn't think you'd actually say yes, right? I didn't expect that. I, gosh, I don't know. What would have happened? If he didn't have a plan, what would have happened? Maybe the king wouldn't have let him go. Maybe worse, the king would have planned for Nehemiah and said, you know, I don't worship that God. You know what? There's a lot of broken down walls in Jerusalem. It should be that way. Why don't we go down there and break some more walls down, Nehemiah? I don't even believe that God exists. I'm not for your people. Listen, we need to trust God and have a plan. Here's why that's courageous in your life amidst your need is because when you make a plan, you're saying, God, I believe that you can. I believe that you will do this in my life. And so I'm going to act as if you are going to. I'm going to trust God in this relationship, in this finance, in this job, and I'm going to plan as if you're going to provide. It's a courageous thing to plan. That's what we see from Nehemiah. The second thing we see is the courage to persevere. We see that in verses 9 through 20, uh, that quickly Nehemiah faces opposition to his plan. If you look at verses 10 and 19, he gets opposition from hecklers. Kids, if you don't know what hecklers are, uh, they're those other kids when you're trying to climb the monkey bars that they just look up at you and they're like, I bet you can't do that. And you're like, why, why would you bet against me doing the monkey bars? Listen, kids, lean in. Because they're hecklers, right? There's no reason why they should bet against you doing the monkey bars. They just do because they heckle people. They like to tell people, like, here's what you can't do, and here's what I think you should do. Nehemiah has two hecklers. This is his opposition. Their names are Sinbalat and Tobiah. It says they are displeased greatly with Nehemiah's plan to rebuild Jerusalem, verse 10. It says they jeered and despised Nehemiah and the people around him, verse 19. Why? Because they're hecklers, right? In this specific text, we don't get a reason, right? As we read on, maybe we will. There's speculation. If you read commentaries, like why? these were, guys were in these positions, and maybe this is why they didn't want this to happen. But in this moment, read it. There's no reason. They're just heckling Nehemiah. And so that's one opposition he faces 
in this text. A quote I love from a guy named Ed Stetzer says this, the fact is being a leader attracts criticism. If you want everyone to like you, go sell ice cream. Some of our kids just perked up, right? Like, mom, you can sell ice cream for a living? Yeah, you can, and you probably won't receive any criticism. I take that back. In our day, you probably would, right? Like, it's not organic. I wanted almond milk. Like, you'd probably still receive criticism, even if you just sold ice cream. But listen, especially if you lead out, if you make a plan, if you have the courage to do so with God's people, you will receive criticism. There will be opposing voices. And here's what I know about opposing voices. They're often the loudest, aren't they? You can have 100 encouraging, affirming voices in your life, but who do you pay attention to? The one voice that's discouraging, that's criticizing you, that's opposing you. I think of a guy like Tom Brady. Uh, just recently, my wife and I were watching a, a documentary on Tom Brady, Patriots quarterback, just won the Super Bowl. We're watching this documentary, and yes, my wife watches sports documentaries with me. She's an amazing woman. Thank you for doing that. Uh, but we're watching this uh, sports documentary, Tom Brady, hugely, hugely successful quarterback in the NFL. It's from a few years ago, but by this point, he's already won a few Super Bowls, a few MVPs. And he's talking about all that and all his success, but he starts to talk about the draft and when he got picked for an NFL team. And he begins to recount all these NFL teams. He wasn't picked to the sixth round. That's really late. And he recounts all these teams that, that passed over him, that didn't think he could cut it in the NFL. They went through his attributes and all the ways he was slow, his arm wasn't strong enough, and they go through all these things. And Tom Brady, MVP, Super Bowl champion, is recounting all of these things. And as he recounts all the criticism he got when he came out, he starts to cry. He gets emotional about that moment in his life. Tom Brady, five-time Super Bowl champion, is thinking back to his critics. So many voices in his life, encouraging, affirming him. The dude gets emotional about the one opposing voice. I think we do the same thing, right? We do the same thing in our, in our job, in our family. That one voice, that one face, we're just like, I can't get that one out of my mind. We're like, yeah, but what about all these other people <laughs> encouraging you in your community group? Uh, you know, the raise you just got. Uh, yeah, yeah that, yeah, that happened. But listen, this one person on Facebook, can you believe what they said to me? Nehemiah, if he was anything like Tom Brady, which I'm sure he was, right? If he was anything like you or me, Nehemiah would have faced the same opposition. These opposing voices loud in his face about rebuilding the wall. Verse 11, we see he has opposition from the journey. So he has opposition from other people. He has opposition, opposition from the journey itself. Uh, Nehemiah sells himself short a little bit. If you look at verse 11, it just says, notice, I went to Jerusalem. I went to Jerusalem. He, he's in Babylon, a little geography it's about a thousand or so mile journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. But he doesn't really talk about that. He doesn't talk about the trials, the dangers of that kind of journey on foot or donkey. But there was opposition just from the journey. Verses 12 through 16, we see there's opposition from building the wall itself. It's a tough job. Right? There's lots of structures, walls, gates that are in bad shape that he needs to inspect and assess the damage. 
It says in verses 12 through 16 that he's doing this at night. I don't think he had a headlamp. This is a tough job. He's got to go and spend all this time just inspecting the damage before they even rebuild it. So there's opposing voices, there's an opposing journey, and there's an opposing wall that Nehemiah has to persevere through. And so how does Nehemiah respond? Look at the text with me. Verses 17 and 20 tell us. Verse 17, he says, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem. Verse 20, he says, we, his servants, will arise and build. That's the title of our series. Nehemiah perseveres despite opposition. He's going to carry out this mission that God has called him to, to rebuild Jerusalem, despite all this opposition. And, And so how does Nehemiah have the courage to persevere? Does he buck up? Does he just say, you guys can't hold me down, I'm going to do this thing? Does he try a different breathing technique? Does he try some some self-talk, some self-help? No, how does Nehemiah have the courage to persevere? Twice in this chapter, we see verse 8, verse 18, Nehemiah refers to the hand of God upon him. The hand of God upon him. How does Nehemiah have the courage to persevere through all this opposition? The hand of God is guiding him every step of the way. It's like our our sermon series graphic. Arise and build. You have this huge hand that comes down and is dropping down these blocks so that they can build. And some of you saw that graphic and you're like, whose hand is that? It's kind of creepy. That's the hand of God. He's guiding Nehemiah every step of the way. He's leading this whole thing. He doesn't buck up. He doesn't self-talk. He's submitting himself under the mighty hand of God. You see, the story of Nehemiah is not just a good example of leadership. It's not just a good example of leadership. It's not just Nehemiah, the seven keys to effective leadership, right? Have you read that book? I'm sure it exists. It's not just that, right? Listen, It's there, right? There are leadership principles from the book of Nehemiah. I've read some commentaries that talk about that, and it's very helpful for me in my life. But notice, as we look at the Bible again, it's not just that, because if it was, we could just read the biography of Abraham Lincoln, right? Yeah, yeah, that would be exciting. We could just do that, right? Why preach from the Bible? We could just look at the life of Winston Churchill, Great leader, phenomenal leader, multiple principles principles that could relate to our life of how to lead. Why don't we just do that? Because as we look at the Bible, there's a bigger point. There's a deeper point, right? Listen in. It's really complicated. The big idea of this passage, the big idea of this book, the big idea of the book of the Bible is God. It's God. The God's hand is all over this. God's hand is all over this. He's stirring up Nehemiah. He made Nehemiah aware of this need. He's compelling Nehemiah to pray for his people. He's using, get this, there's hope for America. He's using a king, a pagan king, to accomplish his purposes and to resource his purposes. God is doing all of that. God is taking a servant, Nehemiah, not a general, not a ruler, 
Not a priest, a servant, a cupbearer to the king. And he's using him to restore a whole city, to rebuild an entire people. God's doing that. Listen, why don't we just read Abraham Lincoln? Why don't we just look at the life of Winston Churchill? Why don't we just come up with seven ways to rise above the chatter? Right? Why don't we do that? Because we have more. Right? Kids, why don't we just watch Daniel Tiger? Some of, you, some of you aren't fond of Daniel Tiger, I see. Daniel Tiger says, if you can't do it alone, work together, right? We just sang it at my house yesterday. If it's just principles, if it's just moral advice, it's not the Bible, right? The point of the Bible is God. We read the Bible, we preach the Bible, listen, so we can not build like Nehemiah built, but so that the God of Nehemiah can build in and through us. That's the point of Nehemiah. That's the point of this passage. And so where does he get his courage to persevere? From God, the mighty hand of God, the good hand of God is working in and through and around him. It's all over the place. And so what opposition are you facing? What opposition are you facing in your life right now? Are you involving the mighty hand of God? Or are you just looking to the seven principles that might help you in your relationship and and you figure that out, right? Are you involving the mighty hand of God? That's what we have access to in God's word. That's the opportunity before us today is that as we look at opposition to what God has called us to do, that that we could persevere, not just because we, we buck up or, or, or stop whining. No, because we have the God of the Bible teaching us, molding us, working in and through and around us. How do you respond to opposition? Are you trying to go at it alone? The last point we see is the courage to participate. The courage to participate. This is Nehemiah chapter 3, verses 1 through 32. We're not going to read through all of that now just because of time. You can go back and read it on your own. But what you're going to see in chapter 3 of Nehemiah is names, a lot of them, groups of people, a lot of them. You're going to see professions, a lot of them. And it's going to tell the story of how they start to rebuild the wall. And what I love about chapter 3, and you should go and read it, it's not just boring details. It's a roll call of faithful participation. That's the point of chapter 3, that as you look at it, there, there are over 40 groups represented in chapter 3, rebuilding these walls of Jerusalem. The phrase next to or next to him or next to them is there 28 times. And so as you picture chapter 3, as you picture the start of building this wall, you need to picture all of these people side by side by side by side, shoulder to shoulder, different people. Different professions working together for the same common purpose to rebuild this wall, to rebuild this city. So you have priests, you have goldsmiths, you have perfumers, you have rulers. And notice this, that they all participate. The priests weren't too holy. The goldsmiths weren't too busy. The perfumers weren't too sophisticated. The rulers weren't too important. They all participate. They all come together to do this. Except for one group of people. At one point it says the the nobles would not stoop to serve. There's always somebody, right? But everybody else participated. All of these different people, all of these different professions. Listen, it's the same today. That we have different people, different professions, different personalities all across this room 
coming together for the same purpose. Now, it's a different context. Our purpose is not to rebuild a wall, rebuild a, a literal city, but it is to build disciples of Jesus Christ. It is to build followers of Jesus Christ. That that's our call, to come together, to have the courage to participate, to plan, to persevere amidst opposition, and then participate, all of us together, shoulder to shoulder, side by side. And so as we close, how do you respond when you see a need? How do you respond when you see a need? Nehemiah sees a great need in his hometown of Jerusalem. The city's in ruins. It needs to be rebuilt. And so he has the courage to pray, to plan, to persevere, to invite others in that process to participate with him. How do you respond when you see needs in your life, in our city? When you see needs just in your family? Do you have the courage to, to put down your phone, to, to put aside work and say, I'm going to serve my spouse, I'm going to serve my kids. I'm going to do something as simple as washing the dishes. I'm going to take my spouse or my kids. We're just going to go on a walk and talk about our day. We're going to pray together as a family. I'm going to get my roommates together. We're going to spend some time praying and going through scripture. I'm going to serve them because I see a need. I'm going to have the courage to not just consume, to not just go to convenience, but to contribute when I see a need. How do you do that even in the midst of your family? How do you do that in the midst of our church? We're two years old as a church. We're still building this thing. Will you have the courage to jump in, to participate, to plan, to persevere, to do that? A lot still needs to be built for us. A lot is ahead of us. Will you have the courage to, to give, to serve, to lead, to participate? The needs of our city the refugee crisis, the poverty that's in our backyard. Uh, this morning, I was thinking about this, that the traffic is light on a Sunday. Did you ever think about that? The, the traffic is light, and I know we talk about that a lot, and we say things like, you know, on Sunday, I mean, you can get anywhere in like 20 minutes, right? And we celebrate that, and listen, I love that there's no traffic on a Sunday. But do you realize what that means? That there's a lot of people in this city who aren't experiencing what you're experiencing right now. There's a lot of people in this city who've never experienced what you're experiencing right now. There's a lot of people who, who aren't a part of a church family, who don't know Jesus yet. We need to build that, right? We need to come together and have the courage to plan to talk to our neighbor, to plan to pray for people, to persevere knowing that there will be opposition, like just when you wake up and, and you're like, I need to pray for this person in my life, my neighbor, we should have them over for dinner. And they're like, but I also really need this coffee. But I also got to pay these bills. There's opposition. There will be opposition. But listen, God is calling you. He's inviting you to make disciples of Jesus in the city of Phoenix. That, oh, we might change. That the traffic would not be light any longer that you might have to get in a traffic jam coming to church. I'm sorry. Wouldn't that be amazing? Because God is building a church that's helping rebuild a city with disciples of Jesus Christ. Those who without Jesus are dying and going to hell. Those who without Jesus are in significant need. They're not in a pew. They're not in a row this morning. What if God is calling us to to plan, to persevere, to participate, to have the courage to meet that need. What do you do when you see 
I need. You see, here's what I know as I say all that. We can't fix it all, right? We can't do it all, but we need to pray and consider, how, God, how are you calling me to participate in the midst of need? This is how you called Nehemiah. How are you calling me? How are you calling my family to participate in the needs of our city? You can't fix it all. Pick one. Start somewhere. Because here's what a lot of us do. Here's the story of not just us in this room, the story of people in Phoenix, the story of a lot of people in America, is that we're typically not short on opinions, but we are short on passion, right? I mean, everybody has an opinion, don't they? Everybody has an opinion about what's going on in the world, our government, the the crisis that's happening across our country, uh, the crisis that's happening in our backyard, the the relationships that you're in that are messy and are full of conflict. Everybody has an opinion from their recliner. Everybody has an opinion on Facebook, but not many people have passion to actually do something about it. Listen, what would happen in our city, what would happen with the traffic on Sunday mornings If we spend as much effort debating the hot topics of the days, if we spend as much effort as we do on that, as we spent serving our city, serving one another, what would happen? I think God might build a church that might help rebuild a city. How is God calling you to be a part of that? Let me pray. Father in heaven. I thank you for this morning. I thank you for an opportunity to be a part of what you're doing. God, I thank you that we have this example of Nehemiah. Uh, God, that that he ultimately, though, points to you, that you empower and equip us to respond in the midst of, of major needs in our own lives and in the lives of others. God, I pray that we would have the courage this morning to start somewhere, to think, God, how, how have you called me to respond? It's not, hey, you over there, it's, it's me, it's we, it's us. That's, that's the beauty of the church. That's what you've called us to. And so, God, I pray that we wouldn't think, well, like, what if, if somebody else, somebody else maybe would just take care of that? No, that we, they, we, we would respond, that we would get our family, that we would get our roommates, that we would get our resources together, and we would respond and step out in faith and see you come alongside us, your mighty hand work in through us and around us for your glory and our joy. God, I can't imagine what would happen if, if that start, started and stirred this morning. I pray that you would let us see, that you would give us a glimpse so that we might walk out in faith and encourage this morning. Uh, Father, we need your help uh, with all of this, and so we ask for it now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.